Now we come to the eighth episode in the Ulysses, which takes us across the city from the Evening Telegraph office in Abbey Street over to the National Library in Kildare Street, a distance of about a half a mile. But halfway across in the journey that Bloom makes through the streets of Dublin, he stops to have lunch in Davy Burns. He entered Davy Burns. Moral pub. He doesn't chat. Stands a drink now and then. But in leap year, once in four. Cashed a cheque for me once. The moral pub is still there, I'm glad to say, and we're sitting snugly in Davy Burns, maybe going to have exactly what he had, burgundy and a cheese sandwich. If the pub clock is right, it's 25 past one, in around the time that Bloom would have been here too. left Bloom in the last episode being rudely dismissed by the editor of the Telegraph and uh, we now find him at about one o'clock. He's between Abbey Street and uh, Bachelor's Walk. He's walking along towards the National Library and he passes a sweet shop, Lemons. You can still see the confectioner's hall notice up above and the lady behind the counter is scooping up sweets to sell to a Christian brother. Pineapple Rock Lemon plat, butterscotch. As he goes past there, he looks down and he sees that Dilly Daedalus is still outside Dylan's auction room. Must be selling off some old furniture. Knew her eyes at once from the father. Lobbing about waiting for him. Home always breaks up when the mother goes. She is, of course, Stephen's sister and the daughter of Simon Dedalus, and obviously she's waiting for her father to get some money. Bloom crosses onto O'Connell Bridge, sees a puff smoke coming up from the centre pier, and knows that a Guinness's barge is going down the river with stout to a bigger ship that would be moored somewhere near the Custom House for the export of stout. He sees the gulls. They wheel lower. Looking for grub. Wait. He sees a dealer there and he buys two Banbury cakes and throws to the gulls. We have an example, I think, of his poetry (laughs) at this stage, which is best forgotten. The hungry, famished gull flaps o'er the waters dull. He also notices, being a good man at his profession, how the ad for Kino's trousers moored in the centre of the Liffey is a good spot. Good idea, that. Wonder if he pays rent to the corporation. He thinks then of ads and where he's seen them, and of course he remembers that there was an ad for a cure for VD in public urinals. And then the terrible thought occurs to him, has Boylan got venereal disease and is it a danger to Molly? But he quickly dismisses that. No, no, I don't believe it. He wouldn't, surely. No, no. Sandwich men come towards him, advertising his former employers, Healy's. He read the scarlet letters on their five tall white hats. H-E-L-Y-S. He crosses the street to the Irish Times side of Westmoreland Street, which would be the east side, and meets a former old flame of his, Mrs Breen, who is now married to a man who has, well, not, not quite a lunatic, but at least he's become very odd because he got a postcard on which was written the letters UP and then up after it. 
he seems to think that he has grounds for compensation and he can take a libel action against whoever sent it. Of course, it's not clear who sent the postcard to him. Anyway... £10,000, which was a, would have been a, an, an enormous American sign. dimension now. <laughs> oh, yes, it would have been yeah, a million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now. <laughs> but anyway, he's traipsing around mm-hmm. town, going from one legal advisor to another, trying to get advice on how you do this, uh, with his wife trailing after him. So she's a rather pathetic figure, but they have some sort of a conversation, and she tells Bloom about Mrs. Purefoy, who's in the Hollis Street Maternity Hospital. She's three days bad now. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, and a house full of kids at home. It's a very stiff birth, the nurse told me. Oh, Mr. Bloom said. And now he just moves her out of the way of another man that's going by. And his name is Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tisdall Farrell. He has enough of them. Dennis will be like that one of these days. Oh, she broke off suddenly. Oh, there he is. I must go after him. Goodbye. Remember me to Molly, won't you? Mrs. Breen has to go after her husband. And Bloom goes on past the Irish Times office. And it's then that we discover how he contacted Martha Clifford. He put an ad in the newspaper for someone to help a man, with a gentleman with literary work, got about 40 replies, among which was one from Martha Clifford. He also remembers that Lizzie Twig was one of the, the people who shall come up just shortly. Then he passes Tom Moore's statue, which is still there, on top of a, a public lavatory, which is now closed. But he remembers the joke about the meeting of the waters, which it's one of these things that you tell uh, tourists. And he sees policemen both going on duty and off duty. He thinks of them going to get their lunch. A cloud comes over the sun, and of course he remembers again the home rule sun rising in the northwest over the Bank of Ireland, because the Bank of Ireland, of course, is on his right hand side. He passes Trinity College on past the provost's house and he sees a rather dowdy young woman with A.E. and are talking about theosophy, he thinks, and he assumes that this may be the lady who replied to his advertisement in the Irish Times, Lizzie Twig. And unlikely as it may be, Lizzie Twig was a real person. She wrote later under her Irish name, Eilish Ní Craveen, which is a literal translation of Elizabeth Twig, uh-huh. Twig being a, a branch, yeah, yeah. just as Douglas Hyde wrote under the name of Uncraving Even, the sweet little branch. Anyway, she may or may not be Lizzie Twig, we don't but know. But A.E. is A.E. George oh, Russell. A. E. Yes, A.E. Yes. is George Russell. And he too is obviously on his way to the National Library because we find him here. Anyway, he goes on, and at Adams Court, which is just about... 10 or 15 yards up Grafton Street on the left-hand side. He sees Bob Doran, whom we know from a boarding house in Dubliners, out on his annual binge, quite drunk, and we'll see him later. Blazes Boylan will meet him. At Brown Thomas, he looks in the window, and that famous phrase which Joyce claimed to have had so much trouble with. Perfume of embraces all him assailed. With hungered flesh obscurely, he mutely craved to adore. Occurs to him. So he goes round the corner into Duke Street and goes to the Burton restaurant. That fellow, ramming a knife full of cabbage down as if his life depended on it. Good stroke. Give me the fidgets to look. 
Safer to eat from his three hands, tear it limb from limb, second nature to him. He's so disgusted with the eating habits that he sees there, he comes out and goes back to Davy Burns, where he has a glass of burgundy and uh, a gorgonzola sandwich. He meets Nosy Flynn there, who, strangely enough, one wouldn't think that Nosy Flynn would be interested in concert tours, but he asks Bloom about Blue tells him, and then he's asked, his blaze is boiling, mixed up with it. Of course he does, and let's talk about the gold copper again. And then he sees two flies on the window pane, and he remembers Hoth and being with Molly. And then he goes to the lavatory to relieve himself, and David Byrne asks, what does he do? And Nosy Flynn says he's a Freemason, a decent enough fellow, as he indicates, but he never put anything in black and white. Paddy Leonard, Bantam Lyons, and Tom Rochford come in, and there's a general talk. Bloom passes out. He helps a blind stripling to cross the road, and Bloom walks along Molesworth Street, and when he comes to the corner of Molesworth Street, he sees, out of the corner of his eye, Boylan coming up towards, and he gets all flustered, pretends to be searching in his pockets for different things as he rushes across the road, not to the left towards the National Library, which is where he was going, but to the right towards the museum. And he hurries, and in his rush, he then just reaches the gate and says he's safe. Gate. Safe. And that's the end of this episode. After the Eolus last chapter, the seventh, which is with its disruptions and narrative complications, we are now back in the mainstream. We're again with Bloom. So again, an easier chapter to follow. It links up with those before, except that also the perspective changes when Bloom goes out to the backyard. That must have been primitive facilities at the time. Uh, they talk about him. And is he doing for the free man, Davy Byrne said. Nosy Flynn pursed his lips. He doesn't buy cream on the ads he picks up. You can make bacon of that. How so? Again, we have views about he is careful, he doesn't get drunk, he doesn't go into debt, he doesn't sign anything, and he may be a Freemason. Nosy Flynn made swift passes in the air with juggling fingers. He winked. He's in the craft. Do you tell me so? Very much so. Ancient, free and accepted order. Here the chapter is concerned with food. It's lunchtime, Bloom thinks of it. He does, in fact, eat something, and again he eats something that's not very typical per meal, I'm sure, for, for that time. Go the glass of burgundy. Take away that. Lubricate. A cheese sandwich, then. Gorgonzola, have you? Yes, sir. Something slightly exotic, I think, and uh, uh, not typical. And so the whole chapter uh, is dominated by food thoughts, by metaphors on food. Bloom thinks of, of course, eating. He thinks of hunger. The uh, famine, of course, was still in living memory. Comes up, you have digestion. You have, um, when you vomit, you have, of course, the... Uh, you go to the toilet and, and all of this. And Joyce said the whole proceeding with Bloom walking and then stopping is like the food pushed through the alimentary duct. So these are some of things, but the food uh, thing is uh, relevant. Also how society deals with it, there are certain formal foods, how religion deals with it, the Jewish laws of being kosher and all of that. Mild fire of wine kindled his veins. I wanted that badly. Felt so off colour. His eyes unhungrily saw shelves of tins, sardines, gaudy lobster's claws. All the odd things people pick up for food. Out of shells, 
periwinkles with a pin. Off trees. Snails out of the ground the French eat. Out of the sea with bait on a hook. Silly fish learn nothing in a thousand years. At the end, uh, Bloom dashes into the National Library uh, instead of uh, to the left. To Why he therefore can avoid being seen by Bourne is beyond me. He probably doesn't want to bump into him or something oh, like that. Oh, that's it. Well, we don't know how far down yeah. Kildare Street Boylan was. He may be in the distance. Yeah, I see. And uh, yeah. I don't know. It, it, yeah. It's the straw hat yeah, and yeah. things that yeah. he sees. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Anyway, Bloom doesn't really want to go to <coughs> National Library, but there's something which occurs to him which is quite amusing. He's been thinking of that... Uh, decisive moment in his life when they're lying on Hoth among the rhododendrons. Her eyes upon me did not turn away, ravished over her. I lay full lips, full open, kissed her mouth, yum. Softly she gave me in my mouth the seed cake warm and chewed. Mawkish pulp her mouth had mumbled, sweet and sour with spittle. Joy, I ate it. Joy. Young life, her lips that gave me pouting, soft, warm, sticky, gum jelly lips. Flowers, her eyes were. Take me, willing eyes. Pebbles fell. She lay still. A goat. No one. High on Ben Hoth, rhododendrons, a nanny goat walking sure footed, dropping currants. Screened under ferns, she laughed, warm folded. Wildly I lay on her, kissed her. Eyes, her lips, her stretched neck, beating woman's breasts full in her blouse of nuns veiling, fat nipples upright. Hot, I tongued her. She kissed me. I was kissed. All yielding, she tossed my hair, kissed. She kissed me. Me. It's a high point in, in Blue's life that he compares to his situation. Now, he always incidentally avoids the word, the name Boylan, that he... Mm. does not mention when he is asked. It is Nosy Flynn who comes mm. out with it. Um, he, he tries to suppress it all along. Anyway, when he looks, he th thinks of curves and female curves. He's just been thinking of Molly's breasts, and that makes him think of the Greek statues. I think they were one of the very few opportunities to see nudity, female nudity. And he thinks of them, and then he certainly thinks compares the Greek gods who didn't eat anything, uh, uh, nectar and ambrosia, which he thinks is like electricity, nothing substantial, and we here having to stuff our bodies with food and it has to come out, and then he wonders suddenly whether Greek goddesses have no, they don't need a back orifice because they don't eat anything, and he wonders whether sculptures are anatomically complete. Lovely forms of woman sculpted, Junonian. Immortal, lovely. And we stuffing food in one hole and out behind. Food, child, blood, dung, earth, food. Have to feed it like stoking an engine. They have no. Never looked. I'll look today. Keeper won't see. Bend down, let something fall, see if she... What struck me about it is that he realises, I think he realises, what's going to happen between Molly and Boylan in the afternoon. But yet... He keeps on thinking what he'll buy for Molly. I mean, that's why he's looking in Brown Thomas. Gleaming silks, petticoats on slim brass rails, rays of flat silk stockings. And his mind, just as Stevens is supersaturated with religion, Bloom's mind is 
always comes back to Molly, no matter what happens, and it is always in a favourable connection. He is never bitter about it. He is more or less resigned to it more than anything else. Molly is always in his mind, mm. and he tries not to let boil into his mind, but though he knows it, and we basically see by the a process of suppression mm of Boylan, uh, that Boylan is very important and so Bloom is also staying away from home because there's no reason uh, so far why he wouldn't go home but it's never said, indicate that he would stay away. So that whole thing with Boylan, I say, dawns very gradually on readers. Yes, well that staying away is, is a thing that has always confused me. Why should he say he wouldn't be in and say that he was going to lay out? Why didn't he bring Molly with him? It will be a normal thing if you're going to yeah. go to a theatre. Yeah. yeah, obviously he does not take steps to prevent what he fears is taking place. Decent, quiet man he is. I often saw him in here. I never once saw him, uh, you know, uh, over the line. God Almighty couldn't make him drunk. Nosy Flynn said firmly. Slips off when the fun gets too hot. We get a more respectful assessment of Bloom here. He's kind of grudgingly admired. Hmm? He is, yes. he is. Mm -hmm. Even Davy Byrne trusts him enough to have cashed yeah. a cheque for him. Yeah. Not many publicans do that. <laughs> yeah, Bloom is not running at debts, that's quite no, obvious. No, he's not. Yeah. Nosy Flynn says he's never been drunk. I think it's Davy Byrne says he's never seen him under the influence of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, Nosy Flynn puts in the proviso that, of course, he'll never sign anything for anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, which would yeah. be like J.J. O'Malloy wanted yeah. Crawford to do for him. Mm -hmm. Still, he, he's grudgingly admired and comes out of it fairly well. And then when he comes out of the lavatory and is going out, mm -hmm. uh, they're talking about the gold cup, of course, and Bantam Lines is obviously saying he has a, a hot tip yeah. for throwaway, and he's asked, well, who gave it to you? Yeah. Well, again... Uh, the word throwaway as a horse doesn't the, the, turn doesn't, up yet. No, no it yeah. doesn't come up. But Bantam Lines is saying yeah. he got a tip. Say nothing. Bantam Lines winked. I'm going to plunge five bob on my own. Tell us if you're worth your salt and be damned to you. Who gave it to you? Mr Bloom on his way out raised three fingers in greeting. So long. Nosy Flynn said. The others turned. That's the man now that gave it to me. Bantam Lines whispered. What? And this is what's going to get him into trouble later. Joyce, in a way, reinforces a theme that isn't yet there mm. by calling that handbill that is put in his hand a throwaway, mm. which then Bloom throws away first to the gulls, mm. who don't take it, and then Bloom buys these Banbury cakes and gives it to them, mm. which, in a way, is one link to, again, the Homer seems to be my job here to, to work this in, <laughs> um, that uh, Joyce named it after the Lestrigonians. Uh, they lived on some island. Island, uh, they came, Odysseus sent uh, a kind of uh, reconnoitering force there, two or three people. It turned out they were cannibals, were eating one of them, and the one escaped. And uh, the Lestrigonians, the locals, uh, could then, from the surrounding hills, basically harpoon the people on the ships, and uh, only the ship of Odysseus escaped. So this cannibalistic thing is worked into, and 
turned into the food reference. What is home without plum trees potted meat? Incomplete. What a stupid ad. When Bloom is about to choose his meal, looking at what there is, there isn't much sandwich and all of that, he also sees potted meats, which reminds him of an advertisement he has seen. Under the obituary notices they stuck it. And so he thinks, obituary, funeral, Dignam's potted meat. That gets him into cannibalism. He says, cannibals would, with lemon and rice, white missionary too salty, like pickled pork. Except, expect the chief consumes the parts of honour, or to be tough from exercise. His wives in a row, or in a row, I don't know which, to watch the effect. And then a limerick occurs to him. There was a right royal old nigger who ate or something the somethings of the Reverend Mr. McTrigger. This is, in a way, how Joyce moves in cannibalism, which was at that time a matter of joking. Yes, and Bloom is portrayed as opposed to all this. He is the most compassionate person in the whole thing. Here he is, he's crossing the bridge, as you see, he sees the gulls, he throws the throwaway down to them, as you say. But then he feels sorry for them and buys them Banbury cakes, too, for a penny. And then he crosses and meets Mrs. Breen, Mm -hmm. Again, he empathises with her situation. Yeah. And when he is told about Mrs. Purefoy, again, he thinks about it. And as he, has know, great, he actually uh, does something about it. Great empathy and uh, with women in childbirth. Uh, mm. At the time when, when the pain was not yet relieved, uh, mm. when religion was against that, and so he feels empathy. He also moves Mrs. Green out of the way yeah. so that uh, this other one can pass. Um, he helps a blind stripling over the yes. so he's very kindly. Yes. Uh, he's one of the few person. that does it. You don't see other people in the novel mm-hmm. doing it at all. So this is an underlying theme and opposed to the cannibalistic thing of everyone else in it. And uh, you get a few surprising things. I mean, Nosy Flynn's reaction to Bloom is surprising. I mean, from what you've come before, Mm -hmm. the reaction to him before, Mm -hmm. it's a new aspect that that Mm -hmm. you get from Mm -hmm. it. He's a safe man, I'd say. (laughs) He's not too bad, Nosy Flynn said, snuffling it up. He has been known to put his hand down too, to help a fellow. Give the devil his due. Oh, Bloom has his good points. We also realise that Bloom knows a bit of Shakespeare. When he feeds the gull, he makes up a kind of poem, the hungry famished gull flaps all the waters dull. So, I mean, it's not just that Bloom is a sort of pedestrian, as against a potential poet Stephen. There is a touch of that, and he is interested in rhymes, rats, vats, he thinks, and that makes him think of rhymes. The hungry famished gull flaps o'er the waters dull. That is how poets write, the similar sounds. But then Shakespeare has no rhymes. Blank verse. The flow of the language it is, the thoughts solemn. This is really a chapter that's really, really easy to follow. Also, it's concerned with hunger and, and all of that taste mm. and things like that. And, I mean, for those who are afraid it's such a difficult book, that see in the Burton... It's really cinematographic of all these close-ups of ugly, uh, disgusting eaters, you know. I can't even read it. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's so vivid and so uh, naturalistic. hmm? Yeah, Yeah. 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 it's a dog mm -hmm. vomiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a lot. (laughs) I mean, it's a chap that has to do with taste and disgust. His heart astir, he pushed in the door of the Burton restaurant. Stink gripped his trembling breath. 
pungent meat juice slop of greens see the animals feed. Men, 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 perched on high stools by the bar, hats shoved back at the tables, calling for more bread, no charge, swilling, wolfing gobfuls of sloppy food, their eyes bulging, wiping wetted moustaches. A pallid, suet-faced young man polished his tumbler, knife, fork and spoon with his napkin. New set of microbes. A man with an infant sauce-stained napkin tucked around him shoveled gurgling soup down his gullet. There are certain undercurrents. There are too many for us to mention more or keep tracks of. But when Bloom leaves, Davy Burns, obviously satisfied so far, he, out of the blue, hums the closed bar of... He knows the opera, obviously. Don Giovanni a Cenarteco Minvitasti. Don Giovanni a Cenarteco Minvitasti. So, uh, the beginning of the opera, as far as we know, I mean, when we heard it, is that uh, Molly is singing uh, La Rem, La Mano. She is betrothed to somebody, but Don Giovanni says, give me my hand and come to my castle and I show you my etchings. That's basically what's happening. And um, she then sings Vorey et non Vorey. Bloom mistakenly thinks Volier Vorey, wonders about her Italian. So this is the seduction scene. And here Bloom identifies with the person who kills Don Giovanni, the revenger. This is merely to say that there's an undercurrent not only of the Odyssey, not only of Shakespeare, but also of musical and of this particular opera, which is the opera of a seducer. And we also have, as we know, an undercurrent of Boylan, who becomes clear more and more, will in fact have to sing the lines of the seducer in the rehearsal in the afternoon. And turns out to be a great singing voice, too. <laughs> 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 